Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. I am your host, Sophia Chandrasekhar, and today I am joined by Danielle Aiding. <laughs> Danielle, do you want us to tell us about yourself and, you know, let us let us know who you are? Okay, so I am currently a PhD student at Vanderbilt University in the program, um, the neuroscience graduate program. And yeah, I'm in the lab of Dr. Danny Winder, which is in the Vanderbilt. Um, let's let me see if I can say it. Vanderbilt. I got it. Vanderbilt Center for Addiction Research. <laughs> <laughs> I um I don't know why I have such a hard time remembering the name of the center that I work for, but I do. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm in I'm in a center that studies addiction here at Vanderbilt. Okay, that's really cool. And so the reason why I asked you to join me today is because you do work in a research setting, but it's like the medical research setting. It's like you're on the other side of what we do in the laboratory. You're on the post post-patient so I don't want to say post-patient but you know I me mean? like it's the other side of the patient like we're the pre <laughs> you guys are the post usually so tell us a bit more about how you got into the research lab because I know for a lot of medical uh, laboratory scientists research is something that we've considered a lot of in, there are industry jobs out there but it seems so different than what we do in the laboratory the medical laboratory that I'm sure our listeners would love to know what it is that you do and like you know your journey to it yeah, so I guess I would describe mine more as like an academic lab setting. Um, and it's kind of funny that you bring up that we're on the other side because here at Vanderbilt, we're legit. There's like there's like a center, which is VUMC, that's medical center. And I feel like all the lab laboratory science texts, like you are on the literal other side of the building. There's like a there's like a <laughs> there's like a um courtyard in between us and you're on the building across the across the courtyard and then we're in this building over here um which patients never know they don't know what's up they don't know what's exists in these buildings so it's always kind of funny um but yeah so I would probably describe that I'm in like I just said a research like an academic research lab um and then how did I get here that's a good question so a and I think my story is very similar to a lot of us, especially in this type of research setting, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's similar to yours as well. Um, when I started my undergraduate experience and like just studies, I was originally, um, I think my aim was to become an MD. And I think it was like my very first semester of my undergrad where I had to take this. I just so, like to give background, my my undergraduate university was um, the State University of New York at Buffalo, so SUNY Buffalo, not here at Vanderbilt. <laughs> um, and I, like, and this was a while ago because I'm not old, but I'm older than the typical PhD student. Um, but we had to take this evolutionary biology course which was so hard and 
it was so hard. Um, and I was just like, I was just like, oh my gosh, is this what, is this what life is about when you're trying to become a doctor? Which I mean, technically it was, but um, I did not get the best grade in that course. And so I started investigating other routes. Like, I mean, there were chances I could have taken if I wanted to continue to pursue um, my MD, which a lot of people did in that class, which was retake it. But, you know, retaking it is more money and I didn't have a lot of money. And also, while I am definitely not a first gen, like I was not a first gen college student. I like, I don't know. I feel like I had a lot of those like similar experiences where mm -hmm. I did know the opportunities that I had and what was, you know, and what was available. Mm -hmm. um, so I was an athlete at the school. So we had special counselors in that. And I went to go talk to and get advice from a counselor. And just like, I was like, what other majors are here at, at Buffalo? That's not just like the, the biomedical science degree. And they, you know, she came back with a bunch of them. And one that like sparked my interest was pharmacology and either way, pharmacology could an undergraduate degree in pharmacology could set me up for basically anything. If I still wanted to do a MD or a DO degree, right. Mm -hmm. Like that would probably set me apart from those people having that degree. Um, and then there's other options. Yeah. Like industry. Um, if I want to become a pharmacist, it was all useful information, but how I got into research was, like I said, I didn't even know, like, you knew about scientists. I had no idea how to become a scientist. I was, mm -hmm. I, mean, I was always interested in science, but I didn't even know what the, what that route looked like. And as part of my major, one of the classes was a farm. It was, I think it was called experimental pharmacology and they had the whole class set up like basically like a lab that I am in right now where it was like you have a project um you know you form you have a hypothesis it, it <laughs> I mean they gave they kind of gave you the hypothesis right they right. they your hand through the whole thing but it was kind of like doing the motions of like having a question and now you're going to run like it was like a rodent behavioral experiment and then you're going to collect tissue and then we're going to test it um and it was like it was like experiment looking at like liver enzymes and metabolism of mm -hmm. a certain drug. Um, but through doing that, I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And they're like, oh yeah, this is what we do. And then, you know, the professors who are teaching the class, they're like, right. this is what it's like every day. And so at the time, the program also had this, had this um, opportunity where you could get your master's degree along with your undergraduate degrees. So usually mm -hmm. my undergraduate would be four years and then a master's would be two. And, but this is where the last year of your undergraduate and the first year of your graduate was combined. So then it mm -hmm. would only take me five years instead of six and yes. save some money along the way. Plus I was still a student athlete, you know, who's getting paid. Um, so that also meant that like my scholarship would pay for like part of my um graduate schooling which was nice so I applied for that and you know and that was kind of a little bit more of a typical grad school interview process and um had interviews on that 
was surprised that I got in, but I think this is like the whole goal of that program was to get people that had no idea what they were doing, but just wanted to get into research, but didn't know if they wanted to continue, like where they wanted to continue, whether that was industry or if they wanted a PhD or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So um, that's how I got into research, becoming a scientist. Um, And then I did that for two years. And then after that, I worked at the University of Minnesota for six years in a medicinal chemistry lab. And then um, about partway through that, I was like, I really want to have my own lab and not like be my own boss, but kind of just have like my own ideas that I can study and get funding for and how you do that unfortunately in this field is get a PhD. So then I decided to come back and get my um, PhD in neuroscience. And that's how I ended up here. Um, I do find it, I think the divergence of like bringing up the um, like medical sciences is that when I was given the booklet of all the different majors I could study, um, we had a, yeah, we had a medical science program at UB. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, yeah, I picked a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> Pharmacology looks shiny and sparkly and probably, yeah. yeah. And probably at that time, my goal was still to become like a medical doctor or a mm-hmm. DO. So I was like, eh, even though a lot of people <laughs> like study, you know, the medicine part and then go on if they want. Right. Um, but at the time that that's where I think our divergence happened. Um, but it's really funny because then they don't teach you about the other portions of like what's happening. They you know? like, kind of, yeah, it's kind of like everything. All the sciences are like all siloed off in their own sciences. Like I have yeah. friends who are like, who went through laboratory sciences, worked in like a microbiology department for a year and are now doing their medical school, like uh, their residency. And they're like, yeah, lab is maybe like two, three weeks maximum. And then you do everything else. It's like all didactics, all like case studies, like, yeah, no, all of these. I think I was her fake patient, like multiple times, you know, like I'm presenting with these symptoms. (laughs) But yeah, she's like, it's so siloed. Like everything is so separate, which is why I think it's fascinating. Like just even though we're both lab, we're two different sides of lab. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so I guess like w- since we can look, talk about the differences of the laboratory, what is a day in a life like typically for you? Or do you have like different kinds of days or so, like more meeting heavy days or like research heavy days? Like what are those days like for you? Yeah, so I also, this is an interesting question, um, and I do get asked, that this is like actually a typical, typical question that you ask when you are interviewing for programs, because you want to know really? how okay. yeah, you like, you should ask, mm-hmm. so if anyone's applying for a PhD program in like the basic <laughs> science field, make sure that's one of the questions that you ask some of the other students, like, what does your typical day look like? Um, so a lot of most it depends on, I think, what program and what lab you're in. Um, me being in the neuroscience field, this so this is just my point of view of how I deal, you know. And then also I have a PI, a boss, mm-hmm. um, 
PIs, I don't know if I have to clarify, PIs is what we call our bosses. Um, they're they're um, principal investigators, right? That's what. It's yeah, like. yeah, they're yeah, principal. Yeah. It's really funny, yeah, because they're. I didn't. That's something I didn't know, right? As an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, principal investigators, and that and that title comes from actually from like NIH, usually or grants in general. Um, that if you're the one that holds the money, like who gets the money, you're the principal mm-hmm. investigator of that grant. So that's oh. where my name comes from. I know. Um, but all undergrads refer to them as professors because that's really what they are. Um, right. Teaching in addition to running a lab. So my PI is very, um, I would say he's pretty already distinguished in his field. And I wouldn't say that he is old, but he is like a full tenured professor. Um, And as a tenured professor, you can kind of, you're kind of set. So he's a little bit more like laid back and he's not a micromanager when it comes to what we do in the lab. So -hmm. therefore our days are very based on whatever you need to get done and what you want to do. So there are, um, so I guess I would say there's like two different types of days. Like you said, there's, there's heavy like meeting days and then there are lab days and me being a student, I'll consider meetings as anywhere from meeting, you know, a small meeting to like, we're also required to go to certain seminars where there's speakers. Um, and we are also, um, as part of our program, we also have to give talks as well. So mm-hmm. that I'll include those under the umbrella of meetings. So there's definitely a couple of days a week where I have multiple meetings in a day. Um, or it's kind of spread out throughout the week, but usually, um, I come in, I try to check my email first, who knows? Um, and, and then I try to make a schedule, which is probably (laughs) not what it sounds like to you. Cause I kept on, like, we kept on, like, I kept on forgetting what time we had this meeting. (laughs) Um, but but honestly, the Friday, actually the Friday before every week, I try to plan out like the main goals for each day. Mm-hmm. So usually it's me checking my email, like preparing for an experiment um, or preparing to teach someone. So also being a PhD student and beyond, it's like our jobs to mentor undergraduate students and in equals. So um, I also spend a lot of my time teaching undergraduate students like what's it like to be in a lab and teaching them new skills and also like other graduate students who are who are like new and learning mm-hmm. things I feel like I'm new and then there's even newer people <laughs> now so um so the typical day of like a lab day with me coming in getting myself together hopefully I can have a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then being, uh, I, my lab is generally, um, is like a behavioral neuroscience and electrophysiology lab. So then there's a lot of like, for the behavioral stuff, there's a lot of like setup, recording specific time points, like that's all planned out ahead of time, but I'll set up in the morning and then prepare for that. Or 
it's me running electrophysiology experiment, which is what I was just doing before this call. And that's also setting up, preparing, like um, I use, we use brain slices. So it's me preparing these brain slices. So then I can record from cells. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are kind of like my more research intensive days. Like I I feel like there's always meetings sprinkled throughout, um, but I definitely have some that have more, like my Tuesdays sometimes have more meetings than others. If there's too many meetings, the issue is, is like sometimes there's too many meetings, so you cannot have a research heavy day. So usually on those days, I am coming in, preparing for my meetings, and then also, either catching up on data, which is really important. And a lot of us forget to set time aside. So we do, we collect all the data, then we don't take the time to like, like put it properly into form so that other people would understand that data Mm -hmm. and then also analyze it. And a lot of the time the data, like the data analysis and interpretation takes longer than experiment itself. And it's kind of funny that a lot of us procrastinate on that. So on the days that I have, yeah, heavy meetings, it's easier for me to pick up the data collection and stuff like that. Um, And then sometimes there'll be small things I'm able to prepare. I'll even prepare for stuff in the future if it's like small tasks. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are my two different types of days, I would say. (laughs) Do you have any major questions about (laughs) I was going to say, it almost feels like, you know, it's like a day in the lab versus a day, like not in the lab. It's like, you know, I, I, I know personally, actually, it's kind of funny that you say Tuesdays are your um, meeting days. I feel like, of course, things may have changed with patient population, but I felt like Tuesdays in the lab were always like the pure chaos days. Like for some reason, work would spike on Tuesdays and you would just feel so tired afterwards. Cause it's just like, I don't know why I think it's like all those weekend samples have kind of like finally come in on over the weekend and then Monday you're starting some of those but then Monday like everyone has their doctor's appointments like the beginning of the week or the end of the week right yeah I feel like all of that like hits the next day or then certain clinics only do stuff on certain days so yeah that's true yeah yeah and like and like ours definitely I feel like it's Tuesdays and Wednesdays in the lab are probably the busiest where you see people running around and that <laughs> doesn't even have to do I think maybe that's just like human nature of like <laughs> of when we want to be busy because like the the we have a little bit right we have a little bit more control in my lab of like when we can be the busiest. right so it's like I'd rather be busy in the middle of the week than have be busy at like 5 p.m. on a Friday. Oh yeah, 100 percent Yeah. Yeah. So like a day in the medical lab sort of kind of goes like, you know, every day is slightly different. Also, like depending on what lab you're in, it's different. Um, but I'm in a core lab. So that's like a general as much of a generalist as you can be in a hospital in a big hospital, right? I just don't do micro and I don't do blood bank. Like but I do like a little bit of everything else. So it's like, you know, people will come in, clock in, they'll look at change of shift. They'll try to check their emails An email, like you're supposed to, right? Cause if there's anything that changed overnight, you gotta, you gotta see what's happened. But honestly, everyone just kind of logs on, checks the stuff, does their morning daily maintenance, whatever it is, take a morning break, go get coffee um, or whatever your like, you know, caffeine choice is come back, do more work, 
I feel like work always picks up like right before lunchtime because all the nurses also want to go to lunch. So they're all drawing their blood then. And then like right after lunch, everyone's drawing their blood again, right? So it's like you have <laughs> your lunch, your lunch hump. And then you've got like the rest of the day. And at least for us, because we're also a reference lab within our system, um, like after lunch, it sort of starts to pick up because that's when we get all the other samples from all the other locations. So like there's some samples that come from the Blue Ridge Mountains that reach us in uh, the Triangle of North Carolina that oh, take wow. like four yeah. to six hours to get here because we're oh. like, yeah, because we're all- That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such, it, they come from so far away. We, um, uh, our hospital is on the west side. So we service the west side of the state and then Rex is on the east side. So they service the east side of the state. So before we had our merger, we still have to get samples from Cape Fear. Right, like wow. every once in a while, like like a couple like little things, we still do every once in a while because we do have some instrumentation that say Rex doesn't have. Like we run um, alcohol testing that they don't do. Like we have like full um, the full gas chromatography panels, but I think we're only one of three places in the state that actually do that. So it's like not many places. So we'll so like you know we'll get the crazy samples. Um, oh, we get like crazy. Can I ask like things. a very yeah. simple question. Of so course. Oh, I forgot to add that. So my my aunt is also a medical like scientist. Okay. So I did know about medical science. Um, and she does like she does um she does um what's it like newborn screening. That's what she okay, does. okay, yeah. She does, she does newborn screening. She's done that her whole life. Um, the only like one of the only other STEM people in my family. <laughs> but I'm curious, how do you receive those samples? Do they drive them or are they, they like do? Okay, they drive them. Yeah, they drive them. So, so obviously, like you know, different places have different couriers. I we use MedSpeed. I know I've seen like in Chicago when I was there on like my honeymoon vacation. I saw MedSpeed couriers, and I was like, ah, oh, MedSpeed, because <laughs> I feel like they're. I've personally have had issues with MedSpeed, but um, like you know, it's, there's a courier system, so they'll get driven, and their like drivers are assigned to these routes every day, and so sometimes we will get a sample that's been collected four hours ago, or like um, yeah. there are some that are mailed, like a referral testing um lab, they will actually prepare samples, like treat them, do whatever they need to, or actually we treat them and do whatever we need to, and then they further do whatever they need to, but then they'll ship them off to Mayo. Yeah. and like other places like Cincinnati and that one goes through FedEx. I know we receive a couple from Greenville for through FedEx because they'll bring them on Saturday. Like, all right, can you sign for your package? Here's a little box. And it's oh got like goodness. two vials of blood inside. Yeah. <laughs> FedEx is shipping blood around. That's, yes. awesome. That's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. Like, like I had no idea that you could ship blood through FedEx or like mm -hmm. ship samples, but yeah, FedEx does it. That's great. Yeah. And I was curious because here, probably because it's van it's like the hub of Vanderbilt and the mm -hmm. Vanderbilt system which is like very like common throughout Tennessee um but we just we have like helicopters come in all the time and you can hear oh. them so I was curious if like that might also be medical that's why I was wondering oh, if it was like I, a driving thing or if it was a flying thing or maybe I don't know I I know I've okay I remember during my blood bank rotation and, you know, someone out there can tell me that I'm totally wrong because that was like, you know, <laughs> seven years ago at this point. Um, but during my blood bank rotation, they, there was a patient's blood that was being shipped in from another, like, I think like four hours away. And I want to say that they flew them in, flew them okay. in the blood because I think something was weird. But I know 
I think the most common way that I know of is like with like just driving. Oh, but actually, no, I do know they have flown in platelets before, like special, like special, like frozen things and special blood products. I don't know about samples, but I, I can imagine. So I'm sure there's like, yeah, that would, that would totally, that would totally make sense because I don't know. We, we also have like MD PhD students in our labs. Um, so they always answer our weird questions about the, like, <laughs> about the, like, operations, because, like, a lot of our research labs are always, like, kind of on medical campuses and in hospitals, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know, it's just, like, we're still, like, so unaware of everything, and the helicopter pad for us is just, like, right above, it's not right on our building, but it's mm-hmm. right across that courtyard I was talking about, so it's, like, so you can, right like, see it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's really loud. I can't quite hear it like in my current, like in the lab I'm in right now, but when I'm like in class and stuff, they're always flying in and out. Yeah. Um, I think one of the big questions I have for you is that from my perspective, at least one of the things that we hear about, like in terms of research labs, like quality control, how do you guys do quality control? Like, is it like different than how we do? Cause when we do quality control, usually like, so say in chemistry, right? like on these gigantic chemistry analyzers, I'm running like level one, level two, level three, or like for my gas chromatography, that's probably like the easiest to potentially correlate because I know gas chromatography is also used in research. Um, So like we'll run level one, level two, we'll calibrate it like every other day only because we're running like patient serum through it. So it's pretty gross and funky. Um, We'll like cut it a lot. Um, But yes, like we'll run QC every single day and I know on an off shift, because it's 24 hours on an off shift, the off shifts will run level two on both the analyzers. Like what's QC like for you guys? So it's funny that you bring that up because I definitely interviewed for a job one time that was like, what do you know about this? And I'm like, I absolutely don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean by quality control? <laughs> um, which was really bad because it was like a forensics lab. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So I didn't get the job. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, it's just like, I think in these labs, like, it's just that, you know, like, I think because we're not using anything for diagnosis Mm -hmm. and a lot of times, I mean, I shouldn't say that we don't use patient samples because we actually, I feel like we actually have a lot of labs that have different types of like human samples Mm -hmm. of things. Um, which is super cool, but, but I've never dealt with them. So I think because it's never like direct human tissue, there's not a lot of regulation around like making sure everything's working properly. Mm -hmm. Um, we more like have very heavy emphasis on, um, like research. Oh, there's a, there's a typical name for it, but I can't remember like remember it right now but there's really heavy emphasis on research ethics Mm. and how you run things so right if we're talking about instrumentation um a lot of our instruments like to run quality control would just be like you have to follow the rules and do what's tell. So I'm wondering if like some of those steps are already like in our projects that we're checking mm-hmm. that like to make sure that everything has like a control to it. Um, but for us, there's a lot of 
emphasis on like research. Yeah, like I said, research ethics were like laboratory safety research ethics that gets like pounded into our heads every, I don't even know, couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny that you brought up quality control because like I think I barely understand like what it is. And like here we're just like, I don't know, we run the instrument and it works. <laughs> So, and then we also like a lot of our instruments, right. They can be like very, very, very expensive. So mm-hmm. pay people to come in and like keep track of them and calibrate them. If we can, um, a lot of the times it's just that we have to follow certain step, you know, certain steps. Um, there's no one making sure I do that though. So if I break something that comes on me and then, you mm-hmm. know, the boss just gets really mad at you if you break like a. I don't know, mm-hmm. $200,000 piece of equipment. Oh, um, you don't want gosh. that to be on you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, like, I have a, one of my PIs one time was just like, you can't think of things in terms of money when it comes to like these research labs because mm-hmm. it's not real. Like, and right. I was like, yeah, but this is also like the cost of this instrument is my whole house. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I like totally had an interview one time and I was just like, don't know what that is. I take it that it's important and I'm sure I can follow it, but I have no idea. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure like probably those steps that you guys have are like there's like a built-in QC thing in there that whether yes. or not you actually know it. It's just yeah, probably like something built in you just do and just all right, this is the thing. Great, moving on with our life. Yeah, right? yeah. Because yeah. we yeah. have to check, like we have like a bunch of stuff, like even like pH meters and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. we like check them every once in a while. A lot of the things that need to be checked are done generally by a lab manager mm-hmm. or um a research assistant if you're lucky to have one in your lab. Okay. Um, because I like I said, for six years, I was a research assistant at the University of Minnesota, and I did do a lot of like checking of like our negative 80 freezers and mm-hmm. like that. And we have to sign off on stuff every week. Right, right, um, right. Like, and, and then like safety things, like every lab has like an eye wash station. We had to check those <laughs> and those are so old. Um, oh. So you had mentioned actually about the, about your instruments being like $200,000 and stuff like your and like your boss getting mad when they're broken. Yes. I feel like at least on my end, if stuff gets broken, so many people, at least, at least where I work, I know this isn't for everywhere at my job. It's if it's broke. All right. We're going to try to like, you know, troubleshoot it, fix it. Um, Anytime the service engineers come in, we basically like someone's almost always like watching to see what they do and just like kind of like taking notes or like okay so you did that or like we'll ask what did you do what can I do to not have to call you yeah yeah I can take care of it and it'll be great right things that break for us eh, if you tried your hardest at fixing and there's nothing else you can do well no one's gonna get mad at you you tried now it's on them to come in whenever they come in we don't know do they have a part we don't know we don't know Yeah. yeah Yeah, no, I, I mean, a lot of that is still very similar because I feel like a lot of times, like we still want to, we still try to troubleshoot or when we do have people come in, we want to learn from them so that mm-hmm. we don't have to call them again. But I think it's because each lab is like, you're under like basically the clinic, right? right? Like running as a system. And what's interesting about research labs such as like a, why I keep on emphasizing academic research lab is because it can be different from like industry 
Um, mm -hmm. You can have your own lab in like an industry setting, but at least here, each lab runs as kind of its own business. So like your PI has to get your own funding and your PI has to like pay you. And mm. unfortunately it still goes through whatever university you're in, but mm. it's still like, it's like each boss is running their own small business. So I think there's okay. like more of a direct hit to like the so, PI yeah. themselves because it's coming out of their like, kind of like not their paycheck, but their paycheck. Yeah. Kind of like um, their like pot of research, of money. research money that yeah. they're allowed through the university. And I mean, there's like we could go on about that um <laughs> actually I'm sure people would actually really be interested to like hear how that works because I I personally have some insight because um my mom is a academic she has done research basically her entire master's through PhD through now she's a professor like you know even though hers is engineering computer science I have read many a grant she's done you know, it yeah yes yeah, <laughs> like there. I, yeah she's there I have um proofread like you know ghost ghost written a couple paragraphs and a couple of grants here and there like you know spice yes. things up yes um, so I've I've seen that side but um for those who don't know for those who you know don't have that experience what can you which what should they know what should they know um, yeah um, like how does it work Ooh. And like, the thing is too, is like a lot of like, especially even students, like even PhD students don't quite understand how it works. But I think, I think because of my experience as like first a master student, then a research assistant, and then like being close with PIs and like, and now they're starting to have me write grants and stuff like that, that I kind of understand. So like how it works is that you're hired as like an assistant professor at a university, um, your job description, let's say you're at what we call R1 institution, which is a majority research. So our R1 institution is a university where like a lot of their funding comes through research grants. Um, and basically, if you think of any large university, that was that's probably an R1 institution. Mm -hmm. um, I guess people think that most of the money make like I honestly don't know where it goes because college is super expensive and you think that most of the money is coming through the students but that's actually not really true it's coming through um these grants that all these scientists are writing and getting from like the government or other places and then um it funnels in so what they do is that they write a grant and even us like even as students we have to write grants and it goes to, I'm just going to use NIH example, but that's not the only one you can like, there's like foundations, you mm -hmm. know, everyone's heard of like the American Heart Association and stuff like right. that. Like you can apply these grants to these larger places that um these other places that we know really well that you donate money to for research. Mm -hmm. um, and you write all that, let's say um, you get a good score, they score it. But yet that's never for sure that you're going to get funding. And this is like a freaking like nine month process. Mm -hmm. um, but NIH will like send it off to a group of scientists. They'll all review it like kind of like quickly. They'll go through all these grants and then um, they'll they won't even like go through half of them a lot of the time. So if you get like a if you get information back being like, oh, yours wasn't scored, it just means that yours was like in the top 50 percent that they just like threw under the table and then <laughs> and then it goes to a study section which is like yeah a group of like participating scientists who probably are funded by whatever institution you're going through and then 
as being funded, they also have to like, you know, work mm-hmm. and help out. So usually they're not paid for it. They're just mm-hmm. like, it's kind of, this is how academia is super weird. You do so much unpaid labor. And is it but, like for like, like resume rights or like bragging rights almost kind of thing? Or yeah. Like, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, we can go once again, we can go even more into that. That's even a different thing. Um, but that has to do with like the privilege of being able to be an academic, right? Gotcha. Okay. Not, you know, doing things for free. A lot of people can't, <laughs> you have to get paid. Um, but all these other PAs, all these other institutions will then come together to create a study section. The study section then goes through all these grants and scores them. They'll lower your score. So the score is like your percentage. Mm-hmm. So it's better. So if you got a score of five, it means you're in the top 5% of all the grants they sought for okay. this session. And depending on what Congress has set as like who, what NIH is going to get, NIH then allow, like sets like how much money that institute will get. And then you then get funded like up and like, they're like, okay, we have enough money to fund the top like 13% of grants from this mm-hmm. round. So a lot of it's like also directly from the government and how much the government wants to give money for scientific research, Mm -hmm. Um, which thank goodness has been like kind of a nice nonpartisan agreement (laughs) over the last like (laughs) decade. Um, There was, was, I feel like there was a lot of struggle for a while and we're still fighting for more money all the time. But usually when you ask, like, doesn't matter where they are on the like right on the scale a lot mm-hmm. of times they're like yes we'll give NIH more money um especially when the pandemic happened they were like right yes, please um but yeah so then once a PI is like okay I got the right percentile and I got a notification saying that I will be funded um all the money doesn't get sent to the PI then though it gets sent to the university so it's like mm. a big clump of money that the university gets. And now the university holds on to it and regulates how you can use it. And it's mm. so annoying. So it comes down to like the equipment you want to buy, like how you want to pay the people in your lab. All of it has to be approved through the university who is now holding your money kind of like captive. <laughs> so it's like, it's like you have a grant to get money, but they have to add like almost right, like many grants to use said money that you've gotten through yeah it has to be like approved and then you also are paying for your salary through that grant so also it's like there's a weird time too where you're like i'm gonna get paid this much and the university has to be like yes or no like Mm. you know (laughs) and it's like but it's my money and these are like multi-million dollar grants yeah but yet so people think that scientists and academia are really rich and it's like, no, <laughs> the university has all the money. Um, but, but that's generally how it's fun. So when I say, so it's like run like a small business really. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, what's really interesting too, is a lot of these professors, like we're, not, we're never taught, like we don't go to business school, right. we don't have an MBA. So it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're expected to be like, a business person, you know, mm-hmm. and you know how to run like a small, like mini economy within a university. And um, it, it, it's like a very steep learning curve for a lot of new assistant professors, mm. um, which is hopefully something I, for you know, get to do someday. <laughs> <laughs> with your phd 
with my PhD. <laughs> we'll see. So I guess like, do you, would, would like that assistant professor be in charge of like, not only like staffing, are they also in charge of like, like ordering the instruments, ordering the reagents and all that kind of stuff and dealing with that all the time? Yes. Yep. They're constantly, oh, wow. yeah, they're constantly doing that. Once you set up your lab, so it takes a long time just to set it up, but yeah, you're ordering parts, you're, yeah, reagents, like what type of like experiments do you want to run? Are you an animal lab? You need to order animals. You need to like breed them yourself mm -hmm. um, if you need to, sometimes not. Um, a lot of times if it's like transgenic type of like, especially with mice now, mm -hmm. um, they can be basically made into anything. Um, so, but those are really expensive. So you want to breed your own. Um, and you just pay for like a couple that are meant to start like a breeding line. And then, so you're in charge of that. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. And there's like no set way of doing it. A lot of universities like kind of just kind of like, you know, they're like to the new assistant professor, they're like, here's your office, here's your lab space. And they're just kind of like, okay, have fun. Good luck. And it's just like, they're lost. Um, there's a there's a large movement now I'm guessing as like us millennials start up our own labs um, for <laughs> demanding more of a structure to helping us mm -hmm. um, and what what is nice though is usually if you start out with a lab as a assistant professor you get a startup grant from the university which is a mm. lot of money from mm -hmm. my understanding, like I said, I, I am not a assistant professor, so I don't fully know, but um, at least they help you financially at first with the idea that you will then turn that money into more money. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's like a transaction. <laughs> and, and like, and like technically all of this is you renting space to run your own experiments to then get NIH to fund and then give the university more money. It's mm. that's like the cycle. Mm -hmm. I know that's not very scientific of me, but that's how how that's how it works here. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's stuff that no one ever tells you until you're caught up in something, or like I said, right. like half a million dollar piece of equipment um, needs to get shipped. And yeah, you're like, how do I make sure this doesn't get lost? Right, right. <laughs> it's it's. It, what it sounds like to me is that you guys need a standard operating procedure for like, here's how to build your own lab, right? Yeah, and they yeah. don't, and I feel, I honestly, it's such a struggle and each assistant professor kind of has their own like way of doing it. And like I said, I, there are universities that are beginning to like start where they have kind of like, <laughs> this is like a weird, but like little sister, big sister type of like, mm -hmm. Like you're going to have a, a group of like PIs of other of established professors that want to help younger professors get started. But it is kind of like a it is kind of like a sink or swim type of situation. Mm. And I've seen labs that have started up at universities that just fell through. Mm. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. But yeah. I was going to say this. This might be one of those like opportunities. I feel like, you know, if like. I, I like that little sister, big sister thing. It'd be also kind of cool if there was like a, like a reach into the medical lab because we, because so many of like the managers of the specialists are in charge of scheduling PMs and, you know, doing maintenance calls. I think that would actually help both sides so much. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and also like, I guess they would call that like research support. Mm -hmm. um, and like, 
that I think that's something that's definitely ever been brought up with other like professors before where like how much easier it would be for these research labs to function if there was just like a general way like a, like a yeah like a organized way to like um have someone basically people are hired to help with like our inventory and stuff like that because mm-hmm. right now it's like you'll like I said you'll have a lab manager or, or a research assistant but um but that isn't as what's the right word it's like not as um it's like, like a hard way to do things I would love if there was like generalized like research support where groups could come together and collaborate <laughs> on those parts um because also I think it brings in like new points of views on things mm-hmm. um because what was it my last lab I did have a machine that was set up that like ran plasma samples mm-hmm. uh, with these like cool experiments that use like magnetic beads to mm-hmm. like detect like different types of like hormone levels and stuff like that it, this mm-hmm. this this instrument could be used for so many different things right um, but one of them where they're like okay do we need to set up for a human setting or for a elaborate like for a research laboratory setting and I was like oh I didn't know but then you're like what are all the things you could do right. you know yeah we, we don't know and even like for us especially for us in the laboratory um I mean there's a lot of regulation around it right. but but like we don't even know how to make things more translational mm. um of like how would this and like I mean universities are trying to help with that question but like sciences we're asking questions and we're testing it in whatever like cells we're testing it in animals and like there's always been like a wall between us and like the clinical population Mm -hmm. um I feel like for us like the closest we've come to like research samples are like hey this person is doing like a liver enzyme study and that's it right or like these slides get sent in and that's it we don't hear anything about research really like we don't really do anything like research related we do like in-house like hey let's validate stuff and see if we're good Mm -hmm. on patient testing for this thing like that's sort of like internal research but nothing more than that really yeah it, it feels so separate it does. And like, there are people that help us every once in a while. And um, like, even just with other things, like in animal facilities, there's like a whole entity at universities that like regulate um, how basically everything to do with all animals that are at mm-hmm. a university. Um, I know it's a touchy subject for some people, but it is, that's what it is. <laughs> and that's what it needs to be. Um, and because of that, and because of like, there's so many regulations. Um, yeah, there's whole, there's like a whole entity, but all the people within these entities, I would say that these people are like some interesting, like in between, between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, like, Every once in a while, we'll get one of the, like, they just come in, they check on everything. They're making sure we're doing everything right. There's like another entity making sure they're doing everything right. And there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of regulation because it's animals and, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't want animals to be in pain. You don't want them to be sick. And they want to make sure that like, yeah, you're not doing anything you you weren't approved to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, there was one time where two of them, we're like, this looks really interesting. What are you doing? 
And their boss was like, well, if you want to talk to this research lab about like what's going on in this room, you can, but you can't do that while you're getting paid. So these two women like came in like, like after hours and like, Poor, they was so like this. These people started work at like five thirty in the morning, and then oh. be done at like I don't know two. Mm-hmm. So they were like, "Well, can we come in like after we're done working at two? And I was just like, "I would be so tired, but you sure can." And we would sit there and like explain to them all the things that were happening, um, and why like they'd be like, "Why are the these mice in these weird containers? Like, mm-hmm. what's happening in there?" And I think communicating to them how much what we were doing and how much their work helped us I think helped them a lot with their job Mm -hmm. so it's like kind of like so you're on that end right like sometimes you're given samples and you're like oh this is like for a research study but it's like people want to know what they're helping with yeah yeah I would I would love to know so like we have these samples that come in we're like we'll get like the slide and some blood the day after to run for like some hematology thing. I have no idea what it's for. I have no idea what it's going to be. I know what the, what the sample study is called. I don't know what the study itself is called. I have no clue. I do know though, however, a lot of people who do get the slides do want to have a conversation with that person because those blood smears look not the best. Um, Oh yeah. They're not going to be. Yeah, I would say that like it's like it's like in a research lab, usually you're expected. I don't know about with hum- like if you have human samples, but especially like beyond like in basic sciences, you become like a jack of like every trade. Mm-hmm. So then you're never like really good at one thing. So whoever yeah. did that was just like, this is the one thing I'm doing one time and hopefully it's good enough. <laughs> More, most definitely, most definitely. I mean, I, I can 100% agree to the jack of all traits. I feel like, you know, being an MLS, I do sciences, but I've also become like a slight computer person, like, well, yeah, kind of computer person, a little bit of a mechanical engineer. I know how like my rotor, my motor should work. I know how the pump should work. I know where to start troubleshooting if my machinery breaks down. Like, oh my goodness, yes. I, <laughs> we're like, right now I like have my desk is all of a mess because I'm trying to like get I don't know what it's even I'm like being an electrical engineer I guess (laughs) I'm like and like I I'm like mentoring an undergraduate student and I was like this is it's just like what are we doing today and I was like we're soldering and she's just like okay sweet and I was like I just learned how to solder yesterday here we go (laughs) oh or like running like nowadays though like especially with Gen Zers who are the current like generation in in college mm-hmm. um I I think yes yes I think I think so yeah at least we all like most of them have a background in coding it now it's like part of who they are yeah for me it's all of a sudden like oh you have to learn how to do all these different types of coding and it's like no one taught me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's so many, like so much. Um, and I'm also kind of glad for this too. Like so many, like the STEM programs in colleges are now like really forcing just a little bit of like basic coding. Like here's some basic yes. Python. Just learn a little bit of this, and you should be okay for a while, right? Learn how to use LaTeX and like write your code in LaTeX. I've yes. seen LaTeX. I don't understand it. My husband is a, is a coder, so you know I just leave that to him. So that's, that's his that's Lucky. his responsibility lucky I wish I like 
uh, it just like, yeah. And then like for us, like, like all different types of platforms that we end up using, like it's like R, Python, like MATLAB, like there's just so many different types too. And it's like, or like, it'll be like machinery that I have to run that is just decided that this company decided to just have their own coding. It's like, sweet. Now I can <laughs> That's not, that actually sounds about right. Cause they're like, you know, this is our proprietary knowledge. We don't want anyone else like, you know, figuring it out and stuff. Yeah. You know, like and it's that. like, yeah. but I need to tell the instrument to do what it needs to do. This is... Yeah. Uh, and that's so, just the whole language in itself. Oh yeah. So to close this out, I do actually have another question for you. So yes. you and I connected through Instagram yes. because you run a social media page called Fem and STEM. Yes. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so it was like actually kind of coincidence I started the account I feel like right before the pandemic and then once the pandemic happened people were just like on their phones so I think that's how more people found me <laughs> like in all honesty but what happened was there was a couple of things I had I was in the lab that I was like a research assistant for working as a research assistant it was a medicinal chemistry lab. Um, and before, like I said, I was in pharmacology, all these things, I'm giving all these names and like, while there's separate like departments at universities, there's a lot, always a lot of like interplay between. So I'm like saying this, but there, it's still kind of like, everyone's kind of meshed together type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but even from like, I went from pharmacology slash neuro space into like this like chemistry space so different different layers of like the basic sciences you know mm. like if you consider the basic sciences as like physics chemistry and then biology right? right and like for some reason there's like some weird hierarchy there where like physicists think they're like the coolest ones and then it, <laughs> all chemistry is physics and all biology is chemistry so they always like think they're better um I don't know if that's really true, but that's always what people say. Yeah. Um, I was say, wait till the mathematicians hear about this. I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. And then there's the mathematicians who are, who are like better like, than physicists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, like, if you think about it, I'm like at the lowest part of this hierarchy. Because um, <laughs> not only am I a biologist, but I'm a neuroscientist, and neuroscientists often interplay then with the social sciences. So, mm -hmm. Like, especially since I study, I, I'm interested in like psychiatric disease, as I said before, I study addiction. Um, so that even interplays even more with what they, some people think are not real sciences, which they are. Social sciences are science. Um, right. But um, just, it was even like abrupt and me going from my like neuro general lab for, that was pharmacology in my first lab and then going to this chemistry type of lab and noticing that like I'm like where did all the women go mm, mm -hmm. and it was super distinct I was lucky enough the lab that I was in actually had a woman PI I guess I should say woman identifying PI like I'm talking about gender not sex here mm -hmm. um like had a woman PI and the majority of us were all women and then um and then like maybe a couple of men and but they weren't even like one was like a postdoc which is like higher up in the lab setting but not like that's the step you go to before you become your own PI and have your own lab 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other men were PhD students, but the women definitely outnumbered. But when I would go beyond our lab with a de- to do departmental things, like I was sitting in a room and it would be like all these basically stereotypical old, you know, old white men who are chemists sitting there they hadn't even taken off of a lab coat in these settings and like maybe there's so all the PIs in this department were mostly men mostly white men um no were they were all white men and then there was like two women basically or three mm-hmm. um out of a bunch so I I something that I had never thought about in the first lab I was in um became like a very stark contrast and also I became the way that like I noticed differences on how like ways that people were being treated, um, especially like PhD students, unfortunately. Um, I always like and like this isn't I'm not going to give any like specific examples, but I'm just going to give general examples of like things I witnessed because I was never part of like I was never a student under this, these departments and I was never, you know, mm-hmm. but just like as someone on the side, who's just observing who like nothing affects you, you know, right. Is that like, like the women, like there would be less women in these PhD programs than, than men. And then there would like, and even once they're in that program, I would notice that like, like, um, one of the men in the PhD program would have to give a presentation in front of the whole department. And there was question, like there's always questioning afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it was like even the tone of the questioning would change if it was a man or a woman giving these mm-hmm. th- giving these presentations. And I was like, okay, I knew that there was an issue with like women being underrepresented in STEM fields. But little did I know that even like when you got further into like these basic sciences, like higher up in the hierarchy, I guess, of mm-hmm. how this is like how much, like how stark of a difference Mm. there was between a woman's experience and a man's experience. And in fact, there's, there is a paper that my friend wrote about her experience that's published so I can share it Um, (laughs) about her experience. um, And like how, like, even within that program, the, which obviously made their program look bad, but at least it's being addressed now. um, How like, the women in that program were like at a higher rate mastering out instead of like successfully getting their PhDs. And this is like apparently, and then like with collaborations with other universities, this was apparently a common trend. So even with less women starting the PhD programs, there was even less like finishing out, finishing out. And which I think the, I think the stats nationwide is that like in basic sciences, there is, technically 50% men and 50% women, but I don't know what that geographic looks like if you change it by biology, chemistry, Mm -hmm. math, right? Right. Um, So after that, and also seeing, like, like I said, like seeing how women and men were treated differently within this like kind of new field that I was, that was new to me. Um, Also like, just having more experience in a work setting and like levels of other unfortunate things that had happened to me, like that can become, this would be like, yeah, this would be like another trigger warning. That would be like, like harassment, Mm -hmm. sexual harassment, assault, like that seemed to like, I've noticed were things that were 
harder, it seemed harder for women to avoid almost mm-hmm. and that were affecting their careers down the road, whether it was even like, even like super obvious or not super obvious. Mm-hmm. Like, like, let's say a bunch of PIs are collaborating. I would notice that the woman in the group all of a sudden, like, you know, the men would start talking to each other and leave the woman out of the conversation and she would eventually get kind of boosted out um mm. with like people were collaborating with so and in like a lot of this I don't think that like men are purposely you know ignoring women right um but I do notice that when I bring it up people always bring up the stats of like well there's half like there's half women and half men in the U.S. that start PhD programs so it's just a matter of time you know and 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 it's not <laughs> all these like small little like things that are happening are happening and like and that's my perspective as a white woman too and like i can't even talk for like the perspective of other individuals who are non white mm-hmm. in these spaces which are like like i'm dealing with like microaggressions and i feel like they're like that's like tenfold mm-hmm. you know um and so kind of being fed up with it um I had heard I had I was listening to a podcast I think her name I don't remember their last names but someone had a podcast that was like called um my stem story and she has now since stopped the podcast but I think her first name's like Prasha or something like that I think I've yeah I think I've seen that one yeah 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 Yeah, yeah yeah the two girls yeah I was listening to that podcast and they had a postdoc who was, um, who had just started as a postdoc at like, um, I think MIT, like, it was just like this where they're giving interviews and stuff like that. And they were talking about how there just needs to be more women out here. And that was the whole point of, of their podcast was like, we just need more women to tell their stories of like, here we are and we're here so it's okay for you to also be here mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. just sharing stories of like how what struggles do you deal with well I deal with those struggles too how did you deal with that you know or like what happens when you are the one that got kicked out with a master's mm-hmm. you know is that the end of the world or is there something else higher here like that didn't necessarily have to do with you um and it was just like they were talking about how important it was for at least women who are you know not pull up the ladder behind us as per se keep the ladder down to help more women come back up and at the time like I didn't know what I wanted my future I kind of knew I was like beginning to apply for PhD programs or maybe I was in the middle of it technically but I was like wow there really should be an Instagram account that um just features these women around the world that you know are in different types of stem programs um because a lot of it just has to do with visibility Mm -hmm. um to know that this is a place that where you belong there were a couple of accounts at the time and I tried to like get in touch with them and they were like there was like two that were like super and they might still be super big but they were so big that I couldn't get in contact with whoever was running those accounts right and it was also like they had such a backup of individuals that they were featuring and sometimes it wouldn't like it wasn't like you know it wasn't focused just on femme identifying individuals it would be just like and I'm not against that at all but it was just like wasn't easy to communicate with these 
Instagram groups. And right. I was like, do I just make it my own personal Instagram? Like make it, make it still me, mm-hmm. but make it a professional account right. where I then feature people, you know, and it actually took me a long time to start. So I started by just sharing my experiences. And every once in a while I have like, I will have like science communication topics on there dealing with stuff that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like my very first was like, what, what are the type of people you find in like an academic research lab? Like that was like my first one. And I like explained like the different levels of people you'll find in a lab like mine, um, which are, you know, so people can always go back and look at it. every once in a while. I still get questions about the first couple. They're like, oh, like I was wondering how one becomes like, you know, like a postdoc or how do I get here? You know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, at least someone's still looking this up, finding it helpful. But so I started it in hopes to at least get enough of a following so that people would feel safe about sharing um, their own experiences. And Mm -hmm. like, so I could showcase basically people from around the world um, who are in these STEM fields. And I think it finally, it finally got to a point at some point during the pandemic where I was like, sweet, there's enough people here that I can start asking. Cause at first it was just like people that I knew, mm-hmm. you know, or like there are people in like, I, at the time I didn't realize that, that the STEM like Instagram was such a big community. Mm-hmm. It was like also kind of like a hidden community that people don't know about. Um, but everyone on it is so nice. Yeah. And, and so like people would start communicating with me and they became my friends. And then I felt maybe a little bit more comfortable to be like, Hey, do you want to like, do you want me to showcase you? I know I only, I was like, I know I only have like 500 followers, but like, do you want, and then they'd be like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, send you a picture or whatever. And I kind of like, and it kind of grew from there. My hope is to just always continue it as that. Um, as you probably have seen, it like fluctuates depending on where I'm at. Like this summer, I was so busy with my mm-hmm. PhD program. I had everything happen that like is important in a PhD program. So um, like I had like my qualification exam, I was writing a grant and all of that. So it kind of stopped for a second, but um, it, it's just my hope to show people that there's people like you that have the same interests as you or that look like you are in the spaces that you dream about being in. And that was really my goal. And that's what I've tried to continue to do with it. Every once in a while, different topics come up. I was like, sometimes I'll talk about like social justice issues. Um, Sometimes I'll, you know, because it's all linked. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, sometimes I'll get political um, <laughs> I'm not shy to get political, even though it's my professional account. People have always been like, are you worried about that? And in fact, I started the account when I, yeah, when I was applying to PhD programs mm-hmm. and people were like, are you worried about that hurting your chances? And I was like, well, if the program doesn't want me because of what I say on the internet, then I don't want them either. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky enough that, you know, someone wanted me. <laughs> Vanderbilt was like, we don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was gonna say, like, currently you have like, it looks like over two thousand followers. Yeah, and, and I've seen like where you start like those like you know, post a picture of trends that like go like wildfire, and like I've seen oh, like ten thousand, yeah, like, thousands will, of people will like like join in. I'm like, wow, there's like so much stuff happening, and. <laughs> 
I personally, I love all your content, which is why I really wanted to, you know, feature you you on podcasts and stuff. But yeah, I think it's also really fascinating because in the medical laboratory science field, there's like that field has over 70% women. Like it is mostly women in the clinical side compared to the research side. And I don't know, it's just fascinating. I don't know where that comes from. I know historically that the clinical laboratory science field was dominated by women. It was started by women because it was um when women couldn't go into like doctorates it could only be nurses right and then they're like all right women can also do the laboratory testing when doctors don't have time right so it just like yeah Yeah. so it it was like a woman-dominated field and then has grown since obviously but it's still mostly woman-dominated yes yeah it's 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 again it's like you guys are on the other side of the yeah other side of the courtyard we just need a wave yeah like (laughs) and like we see each other through the window sometimes yeah um yeah this this academia and like the academic research lab was first and foremost like a men's place yeah yeah like highly highly patriarchal and it still is um (laughs) unfortunately though like like there's like so much grandness about it that I even find attractive I definitely see the good thing is is like things are changing Mm -hmm. but there's still places even though some of us don't see them um sometimes that they're still like closed doors where there's not a woman in the room right um and even then I'll find myself in meetings where I'm the only woman and that's Mm -hmm. kind of crazy Mm -hmm. you know I'm like it's 2022 what (laughs) or like and even even then I can go further where there's only like there's not a single non-white person in the room and Mm -hmm. you're just like how did this happen and then like I said I don't think on the individual level it's like people directly trying to be sexist or racist but it's like something and like that was the whole point of this Instagram account was like just to bring about the more the visibility of everything Mm -hmm. um yeah and I and I like how it turned out and how it's been um I feel like I'm like one of the few science Instagrammers that I honestly do not care if I post or not. I just will continue when it wants to continue. Like, of course, like ever, I think when everyone wants to be like a quote unquote influencer, you're like, you're like, you feel a need to like always have something to post. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm one of the few where I'm like, I'm like, I'll get to it when I get to it. So sometimes I'm posting a lot and sometimes you don't see me as much. The good thing though is now it's been pretty stable. So if I don't post, I don't really lose people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they know what I'm about. But I love it when those like those moments happen where like Instagram comes up with something new and then I try to take advantage of it. Like yeah, like the post the photo thing in your stories mm-hmm. that like reached somehow I reached a whole like group of un like untouched people like 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 untouched in my realm right like there was like a separate like science instagram group that somehow i had missed that was basically all the non-white people and i was like people realize that there is like all these other stem like femmes that like for some reason we were divided Mm -hmm. um not saying like it was like fully like white and non-white but i definitely like followed more white femmes and white yeah identifying in femme individuals until that moment mm-hmm. and now I think I, I was able to follow like I'm able to follow more of a diversity of groups and interact 
um because i'll get comments from all sorts of people now which is like super which was the whole goal in the beginning but it wasn't even until like that like when that really blew up um i was like oh there's like whole groups that i like haven't found yet and i'm sure there still is um my like the sad thing I also see about this is it's also about persistence so if anyone on here wants to create a science Instagram like honestly it's just about to just don't stress about posting all the time and just keep doing what you want to keep doing um because I, I see a lot of people start it and I think they get overwhelmed and then they drop um and that makes me sad because I want to see more women um, in STEM fields, showing off their stuff. Um, unfortunately, we we shouldn't have to do that in social media, but but that's what we do. And like the thing is, is like I started out with listening to a podcast where people, where two women were like, we just need more women to share their story. And so I went and did that, and now I'm on a podcast sharing that more women should share, share their story, even like no matter where you are on the, like the STEM spectrum, or even mm-hmm. if you're just in a like in a career where you feel like your voice isn't heard, it probably means that like other people want to hear it, you know? Definitely. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. And if people want to follow you, um, it's I want to spell it out and make sure I spell it right. Yeah. F-E-M-M-E underscore I N underscore S T E M. Yeah. Yep. So Fem and STEM. So basically yep. listeners should go follow you. Yes. For other great, for more great content. <laughs> more great content. Yeah, if you want to see more of like the craziness of what happens in a research <laughs> lab. So yeah, and then I also well, I also have a Twitter. Um that is actually different because someone had stole my my own name. How dare they? Oh, yeah. No. So so it's like there's just not an underscore between feminine. So okay. it's like feminine underscore stem instead. Okay. Maybe so dad. So Instagram and Twitter are where people can follow you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then if you want to follow me or see any of the stuff that I post, I am warbler underscore works on Instagram or warbler dot works on, wait, I got that backwards. I'm warbler dot works on Instagram and warbler underscore works on Twitter because <laughs> I stole my own name. And that's <laughs> the first time I was trying to make my Twitter when I tried to do the dot and Twitter is like, no dots, please. So, oh, yeah. no. Or something weird. I, I somehow have like two warbler works, just one's very defunct and doesn't actually work. So somehow I actually took both and <laughs> underscore. <laughs> But yeah, and then also, if anyone wants to, sh- you know, share their story, I would love it. And yes, because you do uh, Friday Friday Fems, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Fem Fridays. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. if you would love to share your story and send a picture, uh, be sure to uh, share it with Fem underscore in underscore STEM on Instagram yep. or Fem in underscore STEM on Twitter. Yeah. And thank you again so much, Danielle, for agreeing to do this with me. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right, and listeners, I will catch you guys on the next episode.